What, what mistakes? Yeah, we don't make mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> Seth and I have a favor to ask. If you are enjoying Extra Credit, the Rock You podcast, please do us a solid and go ahead and share it with friends. Also, if you rate and review it on whatever podcasting platform you listen, it will get to other people and that'd be good. We want more people to hear about this stuff that we think is so cool. So share, rate, review, and thank you. Rockers, welcome back to Extra Credit, the Rocky Podcast. I'm your co-host Seth Hinckley, sitting here with the European Keith Strickland to my <laughs> North American Keith Strickland, the Dean of Rock U, Matt Black. I never know what you're, what you're talking about, Seth. These intros. <laughs> Sometimes I do. Sometimes I do. Happy New Year, Seth. This is our first episode Happy of 2024. I know. This is crazy. I won't reveal that we're actually recording this episode in 1978, which is pretty impressive. It's pretty good that we're eight years old and yeah. our voices have dropped <laughs> and we're able to do this technologically from two different And we continents. already know all the music. This is crazy. It's good stuff, man. I know. I know. <laughs> no, I, you know, come on. The, the listeners out there can probably realize that we do record these things a little bit in advance. So full disclosure, we yeah. are actually recording this in 2023, but we're not telling you when, huh? There you go. <laughs> So suck it, man. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. Well, what are you wearing? Since I mentioned that we do, we do record these in advance, the last episode we did was our holiday bonus episode, yeah. Top 5 Songs About Winter, when I wore my police t-shirt because I included a Sting song. And we're sitting here in the same desk at the same time, same recording session, so I'm still wearing my police t-shirt, <laughs> and it still works for my next Top 5 list. So I'm wearing my police t-shirt. Oh, sweet. Well, and oddly you? enough, I am wearing my police exactly. T-shirt. As oh, you wait, can see, it's wait. my invisible son. Oh, okay, shirt. cool, cool. Because I have the same police print there. Yeah, the your, police logo. Right. Yeah, but, but you've of, got the the ghost in the machine. I have the logo, ghost in the right? machine logo instead of the invisible sun logo. I've never seen that shirt. I got to get myself one of those. Yeah, the invisible sun logo. It looks like the digital eight bit, probably two bit digital logo from Ghost in the Machine, but it's a. It's a yellow digital sun. If we're both wearing police t-shirts, my over-under guess just went up. So. Yeah, your over-under <laughs> guess just got just got done. All right, so what are we doing for the big segment today? Well, this is one that I've been excited about for a long time, and I finally persuaded you to do one about- I uh, know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, at some point, you got to be persuaded by me on either the two songs that should always be played together or the two songs that have the same name, but by different artists. And we'll different see. Songs. We'll see. I think you're going to have to do those on your own. <laughs> um, we're doing mistakes in recordings, or another way to look at it is happy accidents in recordings, mistakes that were kept on the final cut, sometimes because wasn't worth undoing them or couldn't be done, or sometimes just because it made the song better in some way. Yeah. So <laughs> what are your criteria for that, even though the explanation was probably the criteria? Yeah, I didn't but... really have any anything special. Okay. My way of putting it was things that ended up on the recording that weren't in the plan for the song originally. Fair. That's fair. Yeah. So I'm thinking the over unders <laughs> one and a half and I'm I might take the under I'm just take- because <laughs> I was I was really confident last time and took the over and was totally wrong. Even though we did have we did have one that we rang did the have bell. The one. I'm but, taking the over this time. Okay, I'm taking the All over because right. I, I, just because you're wearing your shirt, I think we're gonna have. I thought we were gonna have one, and now I think we're gonna have two. So <laughs> yeah, I'm going uh, with the over. Okay, so I who's going first? You or me? You went first last time, so I'll go first this time. Okay, you want you want to go good. first? Do you have a plan? Nah, you got no plan. I never have a plan. I got no plan. <laughs> 
I got no plan. All right. So I'm doing, uh, I'm going to do my number five right now. And my number five song is the song that my T-shirt refers to, and it is Roxanne by The Police. Ding! There it is. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I'll do mine first, and you clean up. Where is, it, where is it on your list, by the way, though? It's number four for oh, okay. me. Okay. All right. Yeah. All right. I have said many times that 1979 is the best year for 80s music, and it included the release of Atlanta <laughs> Stuff More by The Police. I've also said when we did our What's the Best Year in Rock and Roll, 1979 was my pick. You picked 79. Yeah. 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 Yours was 69? I don't remember. No. 68? 71. Oh, 71. Okay. Well, mine was 79. And this song was released on the album Outland Us to More in 1979. First of all, Sting wrote the song in Paris. The police were here performing at a club called the the Nashville Club. And they were in some Uh seedy hotel in the red light district of Paris. And he couldn't sleep and he took a walk. And he saw the, what did we call them last time? What did you have? You had that polite word. Uh, He saw the ladies of the night. (laughs) Ladies of the night. (laughs) And he was inspired to... To write the song using the name Roxanne, the, obviously the character from Cyrano de Bergerac. Apparently, there was a poster of Cyrano de Bergerac play in the hotel lobby, and uh, he wrote ah. it as a bossa nova. And it just didn't really work until Stuart Copeland got me- messed around with the beat a little bit and changed the final rhythm t- to a tango. And if you think about it, yeah. it is a tango: bump, 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 yep. bump, bump, bump. But it has a police trademark, which is quiet and chill in the verse and loud and fast in the chorus. That's what the police do really well. And Nirvana copied them when they did that. Yeah. And Sting credits Stuart Copeland for making the song better with his change. So the police had no money. They were not famous. They didn't even have anybody coming to their gigs. I've read all the autobiographies of all three members of the band, and they're really yeah. fun, especially in this early period when they were not doing well. They played their song so fast that they had about 30 minutes of material. So when they had a gig, they would just play their same stuff over three or four times to get over the, and over. the gig. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so they, they, managed, they wanted to record their first album, and they got this fairly inexpensive studio called Surrey Sound Studios. It was above a dairy, and they got the off-peak hours because they couldn't afford the good hours and it was yeah. really tiny it was kind of crowded and sting as you can hear in the beginning in the intro of the song he just didn't have a lot of move uh, space to move around and he accidentally sits on a piano and plays this dissonant yeah. chord and then he laughs mm-hmm. about it and they just decided to leave it in there i actually don't know if they decided to leave it in there or if they didn't have time to take it out or whatever by the way just another thing that's not exactly a happy accident but it is something that's not what they wanted Stings was not really ready to play the bass and sing at the same time very much. It was hard for him yeah. at first. And so Stuart Copeland showed him where to play the bass notes when he wasn't singing. Yeah. So the bass line is very sparse, and the sparseness is what make, gives it that that tension, that energy in the verses. And of course, in the chorus, it's just straight ahead, fast punk rock. Uh, yeah. Miles Copeland... Stewart's brother, who was an entrepreneur, kind of a savvy guy, he didn't think much of the police, mm-hmm. and they didn't think much of this song, but they played it for him, and he loved it. And it was when he heard this yeah. song that he thought this, that this was going to be a hit, and the, the band actually had something. So he got him a record deal, based on the strength of Roxanne, he got him a record deal with A&M Records, and the song was released, and nothing happened. And then it was released again, <laughs> and nothing happened. <laughs> and then it was released in the U.S., 
and it took off yeah. in the U.S., leading to the police touring the U.S. upon the strength mm-hmm. of the small, small venues like CBGB still, but they were they got it the, and they were driving their own van and so on. But they 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 managed to do a U.S. tour out of that, and then it was released in the U.K. again, and this time it was a hit, and the album was a hit, and the rest, as they say, is history. But it's got that big mistake where he sits on the piano and laughs, and that other thing where it's just say his his bass playing was just not up to par with his singing yet, so it has the unfortunate necessity of not being able to play much bass in the verses led to what I think is a musical tour de force. I yeah. probably haven't left you much to say about Roxanne, but Roxanne by the police, my number five. Not really. <laughs> I mean, just the dissonant chord played by the rear end of Sting. And the thing that I love is the laugh yeah. that comes after that. Exactly. And you know, they were like, oh, dad, dude, just leave that in. From the stories that I've heard, mostly from Stuart Copeland, talking about how they recorded like mm-hmm. through the entirety of the band, they would kind of have the song put together and they'd play it once or twice and then they'd turn the tape on. Mm-hmm. And so Stuart would, you know, kind of play a different drum. Different every time. Part yeah. each time. Yeah. And in doing that, he would end up with something that like Drummer Magazine would be like, oh my gosh, this drum part on this song is amazing. How did you come up with that? And he'd be like, that was one of you know four different things and we took the first take or the second take and now he has to go back, listen to the tape and learn the part so that he can play the song live. So the spontaneity, I guess, of the band is something normal for them. So why wouldn't they leave this in? Definitely. I I just think that's the best part about that whole thing. Well, and, and you I, know what? Yeah. I'm just I'm just going to move Roxanne by the police to my number that five. That makes it easier. But before you go to the next one, I forgot well, to I'm mention not. something. You mentioned the laugh, and I should have said something about the laugh, because the laugh is what gives it, with the dissonant chord, gives it kind of a creepiness. And, you know, who, yeah. who, this, who this narrator is, the person who's talking in the song and wants to control Roxanne's life, it's hard to see if you're a little ambivalent as the, as the listener. Is this a good guy or not a good guy? What's really going on here? And it, I don't think you would be if it wasn't for the laugh and the dissonant chord. Like if it was a major chord or even a minor chord and no laugh, I don't think it has any effect at all. But to me, it sets the whole song up to be really memorable. I forgot to mention that Sting is credited on the liner notes of the album with playing butt piano. Roxanne. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> all right. So who's number four are we doing next? We're doing your number four, okay. right? Yep. My number four comes from 1965, and it's probably one of the top five most famous guitar riffs in rock and roll. It's I Can't Get No Satisfaction by the Rolling Stones. Yeah. And it's a great story. Keith Richards has a tape recorder that someone gives him, and he's carrying around with him in hotel rooms on tour and stuff like that. And he wakes up one morning, and he listens to the tape recorder, and there's 30 seconds of him playing the Satisfaction riff on an acoustic guitar, and then 45 minutes of himself snoring. So he woke up. What happened is he woke <laughs> He didn't even wake up. He dreamed the riff. He got up, he recorded it, had no memory of it, fell back to sleep. And so this yeah. is a riff he wrote in his sleep, and they wrote the song around it. And they thought that riff, you know, the famous riff, was going to be played by horns. But when oh, they wow. recorded the song, he used a Gibson, early Gibson fuzz effect, a Gibson Maestro FZ1 yeah. to record the... Probably, I think I read, but certainly it makes sense, probably to give the notes a little bit more sustain, which you wouldn't get from just playing the regular electric guitar. The band loved the effect. They left it in. There are no horns on satisfaction. And the rest, as we say, is history. So yeah. that's unplanned. But what I really like about the song in terms of a 
a mistake left on the recording. It's not a mistake. It's just the Stones didn't care enough to really clean up their recordings. And they didn't care so much about being perfect in the first place, which more power to him. Yeah. So if you listen to the recording, just as every chorus begins, you can hear Keith Richards clicking on the effects pedal. So it's basically, oh. so, you know, at the end of every verse and, you know, can't get, no. Yeah. And just listen to it. Once you hear it, you'll never unhear it. It's there. It's a, it's a, it's a very distinct click. There's no way around it. The song went on to inspire thousands of guitarists to buy this pedal. Was not yeah. the first use of fuzz on a rock record, but it was certainly one that influenced a lot of recording artists after that. So my number four is I Can't Get No Satisfaction by the Rolling Stones. Awesome. What's your number now, number four? My now number four. Well, I'll move my number five into the number four slide. Right, that's what I meant. So this is a song that my band actually played. It's Rearview Mirror by Pearl Jam, and it's on the album Versus from 1993. And the reason I picked this one is at the end, you can hear, and I'm going to butcher this poor guy's name, Dave Abruzzisi, I think is the way you pronounce his name. Let's go with it. He throws his drumsticks against the wall during the ending of Rearview Mirror. Apparently, it was in response to the pressure that was being placed on him by Brendan O'Brien, who is the producer. <laughs> and you hear it, and it sounds like, when I hear it, it sounds like somebody dropping a set of drumsticks on like a concrete floor <laughs> but evidently they had been trying to record this song over and over and over again and the producer was really getting in dave's business about how he was playing the drums and he got done with that take and just threw the sticks at the wall and that ended up on the recording having played this song it's a marathon of a sprint Hmm. If you get my meaning of playing the drums, there is no rest and it just gets faster and faster and more intricate and more cymbals. The recording is amazing because Abrazisi plays such a great part hmm. and it's so hard to follow that part. But Brendan O'Brien evidently got the best he could get out of Dave. Dave was so upset at the end, he just threw the sticks against the wall. <laughs> and I could see where that comes from. I yeah. mean, I could totally see it. So that's why that's my... Now, number four is Rearview Mirror by Pearl Jam. Cool. Are we on to three my for number you? Three. My number three. Okay. My number three is kind of a weird one because it's, okay. it's a fictional song. It's not a real song, but it is a real song, obviously. It's, it's a real song, but not a real song. And it stands in for a real dynamic in the studio that's been repeated a few times famously. And it also, it's a repeat in a way because it's That Thing You Do by the fictional band, okay. the Oneaters, no, the Wonders, the, the Wonders. <laughs> from the movie That Thing You Do, and uh, <laughs> which I used, I don't like repeating myself if I can avoid it, but this is just too good. Uh, I used in our yeah. top five rock movies about rock and roll episode early on, I think it was episode four. Or five. Yeah. What happens in the movie is the drummer who's recruited at the last minute to fill in for another drummer who broke his arm doing a stupid thing. He rehearses with the band and they got the song down and it's kind of slow. But then when they're on yeah. stage, he starts it way too fast and the rest of the band is yelling at him. It's too fast, too fast, too fast. But you know how it is. You're on stage. You can't really <laughs> stop and start again or slow down and it's difficult. So they play it at that yeah. tempo and the song comes to life. 
and everybody dances yeah. and it becomes a big hit and the, you know the rest is not history but fiction <laughs> the, the story of the movie how that you know what ha- what happens to them after the song becomes a hit first of all the song is written by Adam Schlesinger the bassist from Fountains of Wayne who uh, sadly passed away early in the pandemic of COVID mm-hmm. and uh, you yeah. know, one of the first ones we first musicians we lost in that I don't know that the writers of the movie actually Tom Hanks directed the movie and I think produced it too I don't know if he wrote it the screenplay as well possibly but whoever wrote it might have been thinking of Please Please Me the Beatles second single which was the same thing it was a slow song and George Martin said this is too slow try it at this faster tempo and it became a hit the Beatles were annoyed with themselves that George Martin figured out the right tempo instead of them. And a little uh, <laughs> a little hint at this is the character played by Tom Hanks in the movie is named Mr. White. And the drummer on Please Please Me, the only time Ringo Starr does not appear on a Beatles recorded track, was a session drummer named Andy White. So maybe that's a little nod. The same thing also happened. Could be. The same thing also happened with Smells Like Teen Spirit, but the other way, Kurt Cobain had come up with this furious, energetic riff and then just playing it over and over again. And they they were all getting sick of it, and the bass player, Chris Novoselis, just got bored, and he just started playing it slower and slower and slower. And then Dave Grohl completely changed up his drum feel, made it more like a, a almost like a disco feel, and the song pops, yeah. and that's their first hit as well, and it's the only Nirvana song that credits all three band members as the songwriters because of that. It's just a simple change well, in tempo. Dave Grohl's been quoted numerous times as saying he stole that from the Gap band. Exactly. The, exactly. <laughs> 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 you know, exactly. Inspiration comes in funny places. So that's my number three. That thing you do by the Oneaters. I mean, the Wonders. The Wonders. The that thing you do. <laughs> <laughs> okay. What's so your number three? Uh, my number three is Love Shack by the B 52s on Cosmic Thing. Can't wait to hear the mistake. And everybody knows this song, and it's just so much fun. And one of the signature moments in this song is when Cindy Wilson comes in with Tin Roof Rusted just by herself. And I, for all the world, thought that was what they intended to do. Mm. But it wasn't. It was a mistake. Kate Pearson, in an interview, said that Cindy Wilson missed a cue as the group ran through the track. And she ended up singing before the rest of the group came back in with the music. And true to form, the B-52s loved how offbeat and kooky it sounded, and so they left it in. Cindy Wilson said, all of a sudden, the tape stops, and I'm still jamming, you know? (laughs) (laughs) They recorded it because they had to record all the jams and go back and listen to it, and so we just laughed. It was a great ending. It was evidently at the end where she was still bopping to whatever was going through her headphones. Hmm. They ended up sticking it in the middle of the song where the rest is and put the next jam part back in. I was doing research on what are some wonderful mistakes that ended up on records, and this was one of them. And I thought, oh, man, nobody thinks it's a mistake, but it was. So it turns out to be an extremely happy accident mm. and uh, became a signature part of that song. Because when sure. when the music stops, everybody screams, tin roof rusted. Sure. So that's my number three, Love Shack by the B-52s. That's a very cool one. Yeah, it's good stuff. 
You ready for my number two? On to number two. What do you got? My number two is also one that stands in for a few that followed as well, but it's a big one. It's Rocket 88. Technically, by according to the publishing label, Jackie Brenston and his Delta Cats, but that was actually a clerical error. It was actually by Ike Turner and the Rhythm Kings. But uh, oh, wow. Jackie, <laughs> Jackie Brenston was the sax player in the Rhythm, one of the sax players in the Rhythm Kings, and something got messed up in the <laughs> clerical process. So it was credited to Jackie Brenston and his Delta Cats. I'm not really sure what possibly could have led to that, but hey, you know, rock and roll is full of stories like that. <laughs> uh, Rocket 88 is regarded by some music historians as the very first rock song, 1951. The reason why it's considered by some to be the very first rock song is because of the fuzz guitar sound on it, which was okay. completely the result of a technical problem. So the Rhythm Kings were driving from Mississippi to Memphis, Tennessee to record a song with Sam Phillips at Sun Studio, famous studio, Johnny Cash, Elvis Presley, yeah. and so on. Uh, before it was super famous, but anyway, they were on their way, and at one point they got a flat tire, and they had to take all the stuff out of the trunk to get the spare and the and the jack and the lug wrench, and the guitarist's amplifier fell. The guitarist was a guy named uh. Willie Kizart, K-I-Z-A-R-T, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it right, and broke the cone. I don't know if they uh-huh. knew at the time, but when they got to the Sun Studio and plugged it in, the cone was ruined. So Sam Phillips is trying to stuff newspapers in there to make it work, and he couldn't fix it. But the more paper he stuck in it, the more it fuzzy it sounded, and the more they liked it, or he liked it in particular. Yeah. So they played with that sound. And it's a pretty typical jump blues sound, but it, it somehow sounds more rock and rolly because of that fuzz sound. Yeah. So I'm just going to tell you some things that people said about the song. So these are some uh, rock historians and journalists. Bill Dahl said, determining the first actual rock and roll record is a truly impossible task, but you can't go too far wrong citing Rocket 88. A seminal piece of rock's fascinating history with all the prerequisite elements firmly in place, practically indecipherable lyrics about cars, booze, and women. Raymond Hill's booting tenor sax <laughs> and a churning beat-heavy rhythmic bottom. And Michael Campbell, in a book, the name of which I seem to have deleted, but in a book about rock and roll, said both the distortion and the relative prominence of the guitar were novel features of this recording. These are the elements that have earned Rocket 88 so many nominations as the first rock and roll record. From our perspective, Rocket 88 wasn't the first rock and roll record because the beat is a shuffle rhythm, not the distinctive rock rhythm heard first in the songs of Chuck Berry and Little Richard. Still, the distortion and the central place of the guitar in the overall sound certainly anticipate key features of the rock style. Ike Turner himself said, I don't think Rocket 88 is rock and roll. I think that Rocket 88 is R&B, but I think Rocket 88 is the cause of rock and roll existing. So that's pretty strong. The f- that is pretty strong. I'm going to read the rest of that quote in the next segment of our podcast, so hold that thought. Okay. The, the fuzz sound is really a, a distinctive and fun sound in rock and roll, The f- a fuzz guitar and sometimes a fuzz bass. And you hear it on... You Really Got Me by the Kinks, where the Davis brothers, and they argue publicly about which one had the idea, slash the speakers of the amplifier cone to try to get the same effect, and they succeeded. Sat- yeah, yeah, yeah. Satisfaction, which we've already talked about, sort of an accident. And then on Jimi Hendrix uh, recordings, Purple Haze and Foxy Lady, that sound actually came from the producer or the engineer plugging the amp into the wrong jack on the board, and w- right, yeah. and so that was a that was just a technical error. Same with "Tighten Up" by the Black Keys. It was a technical error which produced a fuzz tone, and it sounds mm-hmm. great. So, uh, Rocket 88 carries the flag for all those, but Rocket 88 is definitely the most significant of those in terms of a happy accident that changed the course of rock music history. 
Rocket 88 right. by yeah. technically Ike Turner. Well, technically, no. As you like to say, Seth. Technically correct is the best kind of correct. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> technically it's by Jackie Bernstein and his Delta Cats, but really it's by Ike Turner and the Kings of Rhythm. So my number two is The Unforgettable Fire by U2 off of the album of the same name from 1984. U2's probably not a band that you think about when you think of bands who release songs with mistakes. They're pretty meticulous with their production and their producers, you know, have always been really good about putting that stuff together. But that never means that any process is flawless. And the guys actually allowed this mistake to be in the final mix. And it's a drummer mistake, which is great. If you listen carefully to the the lead into this song, it's this ambient guitar intro with the usual delay and it's got some great harmonics in it. If you turn it up in the headphones and you don't have to turn it up to hear Larry Mullen Jr. count it off with his sticks before he should have. So you'll hear the click, 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 click of the sticks. But if you really crank it up in the headphones, you hear Larry say, oh, shh. (laughs) (laughs) That part's really kind of subtle and it kind of goes unnoticed. And then you listen to the rest of the lead in and then you'll hear Larry do the real count in with the Hmm. click, 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 boom, and come in with it. So the first time he counts in is not when the rest of the band is supposed to come in. And then he realizes it and (laughs) drops the expletive. And yeah, it's just great. I had always heard the first four clicks, you know, just listening to it. I never cranked it up enough in my headphones to hear the expletive. And I had always wondered about why they had done that and didn't didn't realize it was just a screw up by Larry Mullen Jr. So (laughs) it's nice they left it on. Right. Happy to hear that. Ragging on another drummer for making a mistake uh, that we all make. All of us do it. I've done it. I've done it hundreds of times. So I'm not going to even come close to complaining. But it's it's a really cool little thing that they left in, and I, I love that they left it in there. So number two is Unforgettable Fire by cool. you two. Ready for my number all right, one? Man, top of the list. What I'm, do you got? I'm prepared to. I don't know. Guarantee, guarantee might be a bit too strong. I'm positive we have the same number one. You are. Does it involve drums? No. Oh, man. I'm going to lose Sadly, the Sadly, no. I can't believe this isn't I your number think one. So. <laughs> My number one is from 1981, and it's In the Air Tonight by Phil Collins. Not yours? Ah, uh, no. That I think they intentionally well, it's did. A, it's a bit of a say, yeah. It's but. a bit of a it's a bit of a twist. I'm using the in the air tonight as the as the big one, but it actually occurred first on a different song. So it is the result of a happy accident on another song, and I'll tell you the whole story. Uh, <laughs> Go for it. Okay, the sound of the 1980s was gated reverb on drums. I should say 1980s. Exactly. Music. Yeah, gated reverb is basically you have a reverb sound that decays very quickly and actually cuts off. Prince's longtime sound engineer Susan Rogers described it as a huge wave suddenly stopping and hitting a brick wall. So you can hear this mm-hmm. on a lot of Prince songs like Kiss. You can hear it on Bizarre Tri- Love Triangle by New Order, Born in the USA by Bruce Springsteen, Some Like It Hot by The Power Station, Jack and Diane by John Cougar Mellencamp, pretty much anything in the 80s, you're going to find gated anything reverb. Anything early to mid-80s yeah. has gated reverb on the drums just because yeah. it sounded so huge. Yeah. yeah. It was another accident. Gated reverb on drums was an accident from 1979. Hey, there it comes again. 1979, best year in rock and roll. <laughs> uh, so Peter Gabriel was doing his first solo album 
I don't know if it was his yep. first, actually. He was doing a solo album, Melt. You would know if it was his first. That's the third one, Oh, I think. okay. Well, his third solo album. <laughs> and he got Phil Collins to play the drums. He's from Genesis, his bandmate. And he was doing the song Intruder. Yeah. And the mm-hmm. the producer in the in the control room, Hugh Padham, who's a pretty famous producer, he had arranged a talkback mic so that he could hear Phil mm-hmm. Collins talking to him because Phil Collins wasn't mic'd for singing. So if he had something to say, like, can you do this or can you do that, he could hear what Phil Collins was responding. The talkback mic wasn't meant for recording music it was just meant to hear talking so it was a fairly low quality sound without reverb or other effects and it was it had a lot of compression so it was very easy to hear Mm -hmm. and a noise gate so if you wouldn't hear you know too much noise when the drums were playing but the mic is supposed to be off during takes he forgot to turn the mic off and then when they heard the playback mm-hmm. of the drums through the talkback mic, their minds were all blown. Yeah. The sound is all over Peter Gabriel's album, which was released in 1980. That includes Games Without Frontiers, Biko, I Don't Remember. And it really went on to define the music of the next decade. But most people know that sound from the fill in In the Air yes. Tonight. And there's a lot to say about In the Air Tonight. There's quite a lot to say. First of all, no, Phil Collins did not watch anybody drown. It's not about that. He was going through a tough time in his life and a divorce. And he wrote yeah. about his just his sense of despair and anger and whatever. It was just, you know, kind of a cry of uh, pain. But it's a crazy song in that the drums don't actually come in except for some very low-mixed cymbals. The drums don't come in until about two minutes in. And then it comes in with that enormous drum fill. Probably, uh, would you say it's the most famous fill in rock history? I think I would. I would say, yeah, when you say drum fill, that's the one everybody thinks of. That's the one everybody can air drum when they hear it. Exactly. And that's from 1981. So it's right at the beginning of that period where Gated Reverb became the sound of 80s drums. When grunge came in and power pop and everything, Gated Reverb was out. Just like a lot of a lot of trends, yeah. but it has come back. So you hear gated reverb a lot again now. Even Taylor Swift has gated reverb on some songs. So it's nice to nice to see it coming back because it is a really cool sound. That is the the result of somebody forgetting to press a button in the control room. We have a whole decade of drum sounds for that one mistake. So yeah, yeah. In the air tonight by Phil Collins is my number one, and I was really sure it was going to be on your list too. So I'm dying to hear now what your number one is. I had to go with another one of my favorite bands just because the way that this song was recorded and the way that they just left this on here was amazing. My number one is Everybody Wants Some by Van Halen on Women and Children First. Ooh, what's the mistake? So while recording this track, there were multiple mistakes that they kept on the record. During the second verse, and the verses are really short, I think they're only like two or three lines, David Lee Roth was supposed to sing a line that's making reference to a moonbeam at the end, but what he gave us is something that's just completely unintelligible. (laughs) And the lyrics that are on Spotify, it says, I took a mobile light looking for a moonbeam, but that's not what it sounds like. I'm going to leave a little spot so that you can hear exactly what it sounds like here. Dave said that he forgot the line and admitted to completely making up the mishmash of nonsense (laughs) words that came out of his mouth. And again, you heard it. Who knows what the hell he was saying? God only knows if he was sober. But that's not the only mistake that he made. There's a couple of other mistakes. So like the during the first verse, however they recorded it, 
there's so much gain in Dave's mic during the first verse, either that or he got really close to it, that it, it's starting to crack up and it doesn't sound clear. They left that in. They left the mumble part in. And then there's another mistake that Dave makes. At about the 334 mark in the song, he comes in a little bit too early with one of the spoken word parts, and he says, I like the, and immediately gets cut off by Eddie with this power chord on his guitar. It's one of those things where Van Halen was kind of famous for recording it like it was live, and you know that's how that happened. It wasn't like, oh, well, let's record the guitars or let's record the drums and put it all together later. Nope, this was going at it live. And it's amazing that you hear Dave kind of jump in with, I like that with the way that Eddie plays that power chord, it's almost like you can hear the dirty look that he gave him for coming in early. <laughs> <laughs> Knowing what I know about Dave being the way that he sang live, which was half the time he wasn't singing at all, and he would come in late or not at all with some of the words. He was just running around the stage trying to pick up girls and stuff. <laughs> Knowing that he did that in the recording studio and that they left it on the record, <laughs> I just think is is amazing. So multiple mistakes on Everybody Wants Some by Van Halen. That was my number one. Nice. You reminded me of a joke I can't resist telling. Okay. How do you know when there's a singer at your door? I don't know. How? They can't find the key and they don't know when to come in. <laughs> <laughs> I'm assuming you have some honorable mentions. I do. D maybe dishonorable mentions for our, uh, you know, our mistakes episode. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I have a bunch. You want me to go first? Yeah, sure. All right. Well, I could have made a list of only songs I've used before by the Beatles on top five lists. You got A Day in the Life with <laughs> yeah. the alarm clock they, uh, in the bridge that they couldn't get rid of, so they left it on. You've got Long, Long, yeah. Long with the wine bottle uh, starting to vibrate the on the bottle. cabinet. You've got I Feel yeah. Fine when they accidentally left a guitar uh, leaned up against an amp and it fed back and that was the intro. You've got Yesterday yeah. when Paul was tapping his foot and it sounds like there's someone playing percussion and they decided to just mic his foot. And you've got A Hard Day's oh. Night and uh, the reason that was for my, our intros episode, the reason that's a happy accident is because they really didn't know what to play for that opening and they just did it a whole bunch of ways and they couldn't remember which one they used. So deciphering that chord has been the exercise of 50 years to get people to figure out what they're actually playing on that chord yeah so so those are just beatles ones that i've already used um two others that i've already used are let's get it on by marvin gay where the guitarist just hits a, just simply hits a wrong note but it's really wrong it's like way off he just hits an open string in a key that doesn't like open strings and i'm glad they left it in because yeah. it's nice to hear him hear someone else make a mistake for a change right yeah um and rock the casbah which you had used as one of your top fives by the Clash, where they accidentally picked up, similar to In the Air Tonight, they picked up the sound of the guitar amp through a vocal yeah. mic, and it sounded different, and that's the sound they used okay. on the final recording. I got a couple more, not too many more. Creep by Radiohead, <laughs> which I didn't put on my top five because I'm saving it for later, uh, but the uh, those aggressive highly distorted guitar chucks at the beginning yeah. of the chorus was actually John and Greenwood trying yeah. to ruin the song because he didn't like it and they loved it. They loved what, what he added to it. Sunday Morning by the Velvet Underground has this sort of dreamy, like swirling quality. It's because one of the musicians actually oh, wow. knocked an instrument called the Celesta off a table and put it out of <laughs> tune. 
So it actually <laughs> made it more psychedelic. Hound Dog by Elvis Presley, which we might be talking about later, where the slapback reverb was uh, not intended, but it made the guitar solo, and that became similarly a really yeah. important sound of rockabilly, of 50s rock and roll. And then two songs where the there was a backing mm-hmm. vocalist who wasn't intended, just it was a happy accident that the person happened to be there. You're So Vain by Carly Simon, where Mick Jagger does some uncredited backing vocals, which led to a lot of people thinking he was the one the song was about. He's not. And Money for Nothing by Dire Straits, where Sting happened to be there. I think he was there to kite surf in Montserrat where they recorded <laughs> it. And they invited him over, and one thing led to another, and the next thing you know, he's singing the intro, uh, the, the the I Want My MTV intro to the yeah. to the, the tune of Don't Stand So Close to Me. Um, so those are my honorable mentions. What have you got? Two of my honorable mentions are songs that start being played incorrectly twice, and then they go the third time around <laughs> and get it right. One of those is Good Riddance by Green Day, where he yep. plays the wrong yeah. intro twice, and then you hear and you hear kind of the disgust uh, in his sigh as he goes and finally starts it correctly. We could do a whole episode on uh, on profanities accidentally picked up on mics, yeah. and not, not taken out of the final yeah, cut. Exactly, <laughs> Louis Louis, a couple Beatles oh, tunes. Uh, you really got me. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot of, of them. Go on. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. And then yeah. the second one is Cannonball by the Breeders. So the bass lead in, it's not the start of the song. If you listen to the recording, there's a lot of stuff before the bass starts, but the bass line is played incorrectly twice. And then they start with the correct bass line with the slide up to the correct note. So those two with the, the, and the funny thing is they screw it up. Both of them screw it up twice and then get it right on the third try. I didn't know that was a mistake. I, that's such a, I don't know if it's a mistake or not, but it sounds like it is. And maybe they, Mm. maybe they were like, Hey, that sounds really cool. Put that on the record, you know, do it again. Mm. Or good riddance is definitely a mistake. And, and they just left it in. Oh, yeah, um, for sure. One that I had brought up before when we were talking about Wish You Were Here by Pink Floyd, David Gilmore's mm-hmm. cough, that right. allegedly, when he listened back to the recording, was what got him to quit smoking. And getting back to Dave maybe being a little bit inebriated on Everybody Wants Some, In Agata De Vida by Iron Butterfly should have yeah, been in right. the Garden of Eden, but the singer was so drunk, it was so unintelligible. They left it in, and now it's just part of rock and roll history. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> If you want to listen to the songs that we mentioned on this podcast in their entirety, check out the Spotify playlist that we've got in the show notes to hear them all. Sunday, 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 we're doing it again. All the adult bands at La Boule Noire. Matt, tell them all about it. That's right, Seth. 12 adult bands, six hours of musical mayhem. La Boulevard, Sunday, February 4th. Every adult band, a lot of new members. Can't wait to hear what they play. Come and join us. It's free as always, open to everyone and family friendly. All right, kids, we're back, and it's time for another confession session of Take Two. 
where we tell you, you know, stuff that we screwed up or may have said something incorrectly. And uh, maybe you pointed it out to us. Maybe we pointed it out to ourselves. And uh, because confession is good for the soul, we're we're going to start. Can't skip the obvious segue. We're talking about mistakes on recordings. Yeah. Here we are, so, maybe, correcting our own mistakes. Maybe we should just leave them correcting. in. Correcting. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, we did, over. We nice did job, leave Seth. them in. We did leave them in. Know, we're just talking about them now. Let's do it. <laughs> All right, man. So episode 30, Songs That Get You Fired Up, we did take two on episode 30. And then right. we had the the one-minute matchup was Artists with the Best Look. Do you have anything from episode 30? Because I don't. Yeah, I do. But I don't know how it matches up with Songs That Get You Fired Up because I'm pretty sure that I was talking about every little thing she does is magic by the police. Maybe it's on one of the other segments, but I... Could have been. I'm, I was talking about the piano player, whose name I've forgotten, from Mauritius, and I embarrassingly said it was in the Pacific Ocean. It's obviously in the Indian Ocean. I just want to set the record straight for all the people who noticed that one. Geography. Wow. We're talking about rock and roll, so I it's think you meaningful. get a pass on geography. No, that one, that one means something, though. I got no, okay. That's all I got for 30, and I have nothing for 31. I don't have anything for 31 either. So on episode 32, which was one of our summer school editions, it was top five road trip songs. And I wasn't sure if Chuck Berry actually did write No Particular Place to Go. And he did. He wrote it in, well, they recorded it in 1964. I don't know when he wrote it, but it was at least 1964 before. So Chuck Berry did write it. And that's the only one I've got for 32. Do you have anything? I got two from that one. At some point, we got tripped up over whether, I think it was uh, Running Down a Dream was one of your picks for that for that list. Right, yeah. We got tripped mm-hmm. up over whether it was a Tom Petty song or a Tom Petty and the Heartbreaker song. I just want to confirm it. Is it Tom Petty song? I don't remember which of us said which or if we even knew, but it's from Full yeah. Moon Fever, which is his only album that was basically a Tom Petty album, not a Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers album. Not from a Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers album. So that's the correct answer. Whichever, I don't know who got what right or wrong on the episode, but that's the correct answer. It's a Tom Petty song. Me either. And also my sister, Dana, from Chicago, helped me, uh, or school, not schooled me, that's a little harsh. She <laughs> she informed me, <laughs> thank, thanks. I speculated that uh, Sufkin Stevens was from Illinois because he has an album called Illinois. Right, uh, yeah. Come on, feel the Illinois. I can't remember the exact, now see, you, now we got to do an, like take five now because I got to like clean up all these mistakes. But I speculated <laughs> Speculated that he was from Illinois because of that album. He's actually, she told me, he's actually from Michigan. And the Illinois album oh, okay. is part of his project to make an album for every state, which is, wow, I didn't know he had that project. Wow. My sister and I Man. are both, we, we both find ourselves for some reason in the top 1% of Sufjan Stevens listeners on Spotify every year. So we're both big fans. There you go. That's all I got for 32 uh, and I got nothing for 33. I have one for 33. And evidently, whenever we were talking about lights, we weren't 100% sure who had written it. But it was co-written by Steve Perry and Neil Sean, even though I think one of us said that it was completely written by Steve Perry. But the credits go to Steve Perry and Neil Sean. Hmm. Okay. All right. Cool. On episode 34, which was Songs About Professions, Read My Mind, and the one-minute matchup was Bands That Spawned the Best Solo Careers. I've got in my notes that Lawyers in Love was by Jackson Brown, not Rick Springfield. Exactly. So one of us misspoke with I that said one. It, no, I, I said it both ways. In the beginning, I said Rick Springfield, but later I said Jackson Brown. So Ah, okay. Well, I don't you know corrected where, yourself. I don't know where Rick Springfield <laughs> came out of my mind, but it was, it was me, yeah. But I, I did get it right later, though. And then I was talking about the song Rooster, 
I think I said something that may have implied that Jerry Cantrell sang the song. He didn't sing lead on Rooster. That was lead was sung by Lane Staley, but Jerry Cantrell sang backup. Okay. And then I've got one more. Both of us kind of mishmashed how Nandy Bouchelle ended up playing with the Foo Fighters. Ah. Here's how it really happened. The first time she played with the Foo Fighters was in 2021. And she played Everlong with them in L.A. after having the online drum battles with Dave Grohl. Then fast forward to 2022, and she played Learn to Fly with the Foos at the Taylor Hawkins Tribute Show at Wembley Stadium in London in September of 22. So those were the two times that she played with the Foos. I don't think I mismatched it. Go back and check the tape. I said it was L.A. and I said it was Everlong. I'm pretty sure. That's yeah, what I but, wrote down. but it, I thought I thought you were saying that that was the Taylor Hawkins tribute, which was no, no, not no, 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 no. I wasn't it saying was, it was. It was the, I wasn't saying it was the Taylor Hawkins tribute. The first okay. time she played with them was at it was the Hollywood Bowl in L.A., which is what I had written yeah. down. So yeah, okay. and then, I hadn't written it down, but it's what I remembered. And you said Wembley, and I was confused because I was pretty sure it was L.A. Ah, okay. Anyway, you mentioned the uh, songs about jobs and professions and whatever the one-minute matchup was. You neglected to mention that was my Dave Grohl trip, where I came back five (laughs) hours later not knowing where I had been. I also mentioned that Dave Grohl is the only artist who bumped one of his tracks from one band off the number one spot by a track from another band twice in a row because he knocked yeah. a, a, a Foo Fighters track knocked off a Nirvana. Was it Foo Fighters knocked off Nirvana? I'm pretty sure. I don't remember what I said. I I'll have to go back. I don't remember what I you said. I don't want to slip back into that into that, that place where I went that last time, so I won't even check. But then I mentioned that then the, the Foo Fighters song was knocked off by No One Knows by Queens of the Stone Age, and I, sang, and I said to myself, why am I including this here? I wonder if he played drums on that track. In fact, he did. So he was on yeah. three there was one week between the between the Foo Fighters song and the Queens of the Stone Age song but other than that he was on the the number one spot with three different bands not even three different songs three different bands consecutively yeah. other than that one week so yeah that was my let's not go there again <laughs> my lawyers say I'm not allowed to say Dave Grohl again on this podcast <laughs> <laughs> Do you have anything for episode 35? I do. Uh, a okay. frequent, frequent contributor, Nick, from Houston, corrected yeah. me. Walk on the Wild Side is not a Velvet Underground song. It's a Lou Reed song. He's absolutely right. It's from Transformer. Yeah. Okay. I didn't have anything from 35. I don't have anything from 36 that I picked up. Episode 37, which was top five songs that chill you out. We did feedback, and then the one-minute matchup was worst cover ever. I had a couple of things. The most played Beatles song. Now, I did a little bit of research on this, and according to the Radio X website, and evidently Radio X is in the UK, as of September 2nd, 2023, which was the date that this article was published, Mm -hmm. they said, Here Comes the Sun is the only Beatles track to have over a billion streams on Spotify and has 264 million views on YouTube, even though there's no official video for it. Wow. So that's 1.2 billion plays. And on Spotify, they did the listing of this, and I just took the second song. Hey Jude has been streamed over 600 million times and viewed on YouTube over 430 million times. So it's over a billion, mm-hmm. but Here Comes the Sun is a billion too. Right. So 
That's just a ridiculous amount of times for a song to be Actually, played. that's not that high for some Spotify statistics. But remember, the Beatles refused to let Spotify stream their music until pretty recently, just a few years ago. Right, so yeah. So that's like 10 years they lost compared to, say, Imagine Dragons, which probably has more streams. They'll Beatles will pass them for sure. Uh, I still think yeah. that Hey Jude is generally considered their most commercially successful uh, song. And I still think if you go back to album sales or single sales, it's going to, or radio plays or whatever they use, I still think Hey Jude is probably in better shape than Hey, Here Comes the Sun. But why argue over who's got more gazillions of listens? It's pretty. pretty yeah, up there. exactly. Yeah. Once you're over a billion, I think you're doing pretty good. I think good. you're doing fine. I think you've, yeah, I think they're probably well over a billion to the point where there's more listens than humans. And then you brought up that there were two studios in Muscle Shoals that had famous groups. Mm-hmm. And so I went and dug around uh, and did a little research just because I was curious and I, I didn't know. I thought it was one studio right. in Muscle Shoals. I, I thought it was the uh, Muscle Shoals Sound Studio. Yeah, right. say that five times real fast. Exactly. Well, Muscle Shoals Sound Studio opened in early 1969 and it was opened by the Muscle Shoals Rhythm Section, also known as the Swampers, who had started work at this place called Rick Hall's Fame Studio. Right. And Fame stands for Florence, Alabama Music Enterprises. Mm-hmm. Florence, Alabama is really close to Muscle Shoals, right. if you didn't know. So the Swampers left Fame to go start their own studio. And allegedly, Fame had a group before the Swampers and they recorded some stuff and then they brought the Swampers in and then the Swampers left and started their own studio. If you look on both of the websites for for both of those studios, they both have numerous artists that had numerous songs that were really successful. Both of them lay claim to the Muscle Shoals sound. Right, sure. That was a lot more convoluted than I thought it was going to be. And then if you (laughs) look on Google Maps, there's like two or three other recording studios in Muscle Shoals, and it's not that big of a town. So lots of places to record in northern Alabama if that's what you're looking to do. Yeah, I've been to Muscle Shoals. I made a detour during a road trip so I could visit Muscle Shoals Sound Studio, which do you remember who bought it and and saved it from ruin? I told you in one of the earlier episodes, Dr. Dre. So when I was there, oh, it was yeah, closed because it's Dr. A, Dre had just bought it and he was you know, they were renovating the control room. Yeah. So only the gift shop was open. And anyway, uh, I was under the I had the understanding that the Swampers were at the other studio and the Muscle Shoals Sound uh, Rhythm Section. What did you call them? The Muscle Shoals. They didn't really have a good name that, like the Wrecking Crew. Their or official the their official name was the Muscle Shoals Rhythm Section. Right. So, but I wouldn't. They be were shocked. known as the Swampers. Yeah, I wouldn't be shocked if they had some overlap. At the Muscle Soul Sound Studio, they were pretty clear that those were not the Swampers. So, you know, we're going to have to disentangle this. This sounds like a take 14 we're going to we're up to now. Maybe it's a future segment. On the Muscle Soul Sound Studio website, it says that the Swampers, David Hood on bass, Jimmy Johnson on rhythm guitar, Roger Hawkins on drums, and Barry Beckett on keys, they were the guys that started that studio. Maybe in 1969. Maybe, but maybe and it's they one of left. Those, yeah. They left fame yeah. and took their own money but, and invested it and started the studio. Maybe it's one of those cases where the other swampers were like, "Hey, you can't use that name. That's our name," or something like that. We'll have to we'll, we'll have to dig into it. I didn't find anything on the fame website that said that they had the swampers. Right. And if right. they did, they would have said it because they used so. every other name that they could use on that there's website a, to show how good they were. There's a couple documentaries, and I've seen one or two of them. We have to. 
I'm going to bookmark this for a future middle segment. We're going to we're going to sort this out once and for all. <laughs> Do you have anything from 37? Yeah, yeah, I got a big one. I got a big one. Okay. Um, So back to Nick from Houston. In our feedback section of episode 37, Nick said something to the effect of, come on, let's let's all admit it. Lieber and Stoller stole Hound Dog from Big Mama Thornton. So I I didn't think so. I had never heard that. And I never heard that about that song or, or about Lieber and Stoller. So I did. I said on the episode, I would I would check into it, and I did. So first of all, there is no question that that dynamic is very common. White producers yeah. and white musicians stealing from from black musicians who have been singing the songs for a long time, but not on Hound Dog. Hound Dog was was actually commissioned by Big Mama Thornton's producer. He got Lieber and Stoller to write that song, and they were. Okay. There's a. It's well documented. The various contributions are well documented, and the big issue seems to be Big Mama. Thornton claimed that it was her song because of the way she interpreted the song. But Lieber and Stoller said she wasn't originally doing it the way she ended up doing it. She actually had a fair a, a fairly sized hit for that for that song. And they wanted mm-hmm. her to sing it more the way she actually did it, and she didn't want to. That part is pretty contentious because she said that was her contribution and they said that was theirs. But there's no question about who wrote the song. It was Lieber and Stoller. While many other, many, many other artists at the time and producers at the time were clearly stealing music from people that weren't going to step up and take the credit for it. doesn't seem like Lieber and Stoller ever did that. A lot of their hits were not for, not even for rock and roll. They wrote all kinds of songs. Yeah. It's pretty well documented and there's a podcast interview with, I'm trying to remember which one's still alive. I think it's Mike Stoller is still alive. Whichever one of the two is still alive gave a long interview on this and pretty well documented, pretty well supported that what Big Mama Thornton was claiming was that she interpreted the song a certain way. And she deserves credit for that. Uh. I want to finish off the Ike Turner quote that I mentioned in the first segment. This is from a 2011 interview, or at least a 2011 publication. I'm not sure if he gave the interview in 2011. And I think the whole thing is worth hearing, despite, you know, whatever else. He said, as I said before, I don't think that Rocket 88 is, a rock, is rock and roll. I think that Rocket 88 is R&B, but I think Rocket 88 is the cause of rock and roll existing. And here's the rest of the quote. Sam Phillips got Dewey Phillips to play Rocket 88 on his radio program. And this is the first black record to be played on a white radio station, which, by the way, we've talked about before. Radio used to be segregated. Oh, yeah. It was called yeah, ra- yeah, yeah. black radio stations played what was called at the time race music. Anyway, getting back to Ike Turner. And man, all the white kids broke out to the record shops to buy it. So that's when Sam Phillips got the idea. Well, man, if I get me a white boy that sound like a black boy, then I got me a gold mine. That's a quote from Ike Turner. So, uh, which yeah. is the truth, he says. So that's when he got Elvis and he got Jerry Lee Lewis and a bunch of other guys. And so they named it rock and roll rather than R&B. And so this is the reason I think rock and roll exists. Not that Rocket 8 was the first one, but that was what caused the first one. So close quotes. That was all Ike Turner's words right there. I completely agree with Nick that that's what happened in history. Just didn't happen on Hound mm-hmm. Dog and it wasn't done by Lieber and Stiller. Elvis and Sam Phillips deserve tons of blame for that. And that's a whole other yeah. chapter in rock and roll. It's a sad chapter in rock and roll. Something that you have to go look back at and be like, that wasn't cool at all. Nope. We wanted to tell the listeners about a new idea we've got for a segment. We need a name for it, too. You can help us out with that. We want you to write in with your situations. And Seth and I are each going to propose what we think is the perfect musical message to send, the right song for the situation. You want to quit your job? You want to propose marriage? You achieved a beatdown of your best friend in a tennis match or a golf game or something like that? You write to us. (laughs) Write to us at podcast at rock-u.fr. And Seth and I will each come up with the perfect song that you can use to make your point. Whatever situation you got, I think we can find a song for it. So I know we can. Let us know what you got. 
All right, kids, we're back, and it's time for 60 seconds of intellectual insanity, the speed <laughs> round of Extra Credit, the Rock You podcast. It's the one-minute matchup. Woohoo! Woohoo! So what we're doing today is, what's the best instrument to add to your rock band after you have guitar, bass, keys, and drums? So, Good question. Yeah. For some reason, we have a hard time coming up with one-minute matchup things. But Yeah, um, hey, listeners out there, if you have suggestions for a one-minute matchup topic, email it to us at podcast at rock-u.fr. We would love to hear your suggestions. Yeah, that would be really good. So I'm going to get the stopwatch out. Who's going first? Up to you. I can never remember. All right. Why don't you go first? Sure. And I'll get the stopwatch out and get it to where you can see it, hopefully. I can All see right. it. There you can see it, and yep. I'm going to fat finger this, and hopefully you can see this when I do this, but okay. I can see it and fine right now. Your minute starts now. Oh, you stopped it again. Oh, I, I did? I, I uh, only get 0.33 seconds to do this? <laughs> yes. I can still do it, actually. You only get a third of a second. I can give you a one-word answer, and I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Your minute starts now. Okay. Well, this is an easy one for me. There's four contenders, really. Uh, horns, strings, um, harmonica and violin as a solo instrument I could see and I don't really have much trouble with this I don't even need a minute I'll wrap this up in 30 seconds the answer is horns uh, as Mark Heim of the Doodads likes to say without the horns you're just any other band and it's true <laughs> horns bring a brightness and an excitement to um, to rock music that it just, just makes it so much more fun you hear it all over rock you certainly hear it on funk and R&B as well but it's just a, it's a sound that I love uh, I like strings a lot too but it's, you know you're not going to carry a string quartet around with you to gig so the answer is horns 43 seconds 43 seconds good yeah. all right you ready am i am i gonna have to cut down the the tick 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 noise i don't know only did we got to wait it out or something you're the engineer man you tell it's me it's like final jeopardy all right are you ready yeah, I'm ready. All right, counting down in three, two, one. Okay. Uh, so for me, it's between the harmonica and the saxophone. And while the harmonica is awesome, and it's obviously one of the easiest things to carry with you to a rock and roll show, uh, I got to go with the sax, and here's why. I'm just going to list them off. Um, and one song per group, but there's there's a lot of songs for each of these groups. Springsteen and the E Street Band, Born to Run. Huey Lewis and the News, I Want a New Drug. Bob Seger and the Silver Bullet Band, Turn the Page. Pink Floyd, Shine on You Crazy Diamond. Um, Jerry Rafferty, Baker Street. Men at Work, Who Can It Be Now? NXS, Never Tear Us Apart. Bowie, Modern Love. George Thorogood, Bad to the Bone. Super Tramp, The Logical Song. Uh, Dave Matthews Band, who has a ton of sax in their stuff. Gray Street. Uh, Tina Turner, The Best. Glenn Fry, You Belong to the City. Lou Reed, Walk on the Wild Side. I mean, if that doesn't tell you that saxophone should be the thing you add to your band, I don't know what will. 58 seconds. Just so. yeah, right there. All right. Yeah, so I guess we're I guess we're in agreement. I I took it as a horn section, you took it as a sax, but I'm I'm good either way. I think it's close enough. We're in the same territory. The one thing that I love is NXS has a song called New Sensation and there's a sax part in it, but the lead singer says trumpet right before the sax comes in. <laughs> but what I love is when my band played it and Mark Heim was there. We said trumpet, and he brought the trumpet in, which I thought was classic. So, cool stuff.
So was there something on this podcast that you wanted to talk to us about? <laughs> Did we get something wrong? Do you not agree with some of the stuff that we said? Then you need to email us at podcast at rock-u.fr. Extra credit, the Rock You podcast is brought to you with support from our partners at Big Pebble Records. Big Pebble Records is your one-stop shop for all music production in Paris. Everything from the composition to the creative side, to the recording and engineering, to the mixing and mastering, to the distribution and publication and publicity. Check them out at www.bigpebblerecords.com. And of course, you will hear lots of Rock You musicians on that label. Extra Credit, the Rock U podcast, is a production of Rock U. Expertly engineered and recorded by my good friend Seth Hinkley. And our theme music is written and produced by Tom Walters. Rock U is a nonprofit association, Loi 1901, and we'll see you next time. 